now. Welcome everyone to the City's First Podcast. Uh, my name is Scott Shepard, a founder and host of the City's First Podcast, and we're really excited to have here today on, I believe it's our 12th episode now. We've been doing this for a year. So this is our first year anniversary. And with that, we're happy to um, have with us very special guest, Alex Mitchell from my hometown of Los Angeles, California. So it's really special um, to have you here and kind of talk about everything related to Los Angeles and mobility. So thanks for uh, joining us and reaching out, Alex. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, and, and happy birthday, by the way. Uh, congrats on, on the one year anniversary of the podcast. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, City's first birthday. There we go. Um, we'll be doing kind of a separate social media on that. But uh, let's start with just a little bio about yourself, Alex, and then we'll kind of tee it off for kind of our usual format of questions. We spent about 35, 40 minutes. It's very interactive. Um, and it's really just a platform for uh, really kind of listening to what's uh, kind of on the horizon for different uh, mobility specialists and getting their own uh, perspectives on um, the ecosystem. So with that, a uh, little bit about uh, Alex. So he's the founder managing director of Full Turn Capital, where he invests in early stage companies innovating at the intersection of clean tech and mobility. Previously, Alex was a senior vice president of market transformation at the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator, where he oversaw LACI's technical priorities, multi-stakeholder programs, and initial pilots and deployments. He joined LACI from Group PSA. Uh, I'm a PSA alum as well, too, in Paris, where he was a VP of corporate strategy, co-leading the company's acquisition of Opal from GM and leading the company's work on autonomous mobility. Uh, previously, he headed up the automotive uh, industry vertical at the World Economic Forum with a focus on autonomous mobility. And he's also served as VP of retail sales at an LA-based EV startup, Coda Automotive Incorporated. And then finally, he's also worked at Toyota Motor Europe and McKinsey. So very impressive uh, CV on all fronts related to mobility. So I think we're going to have a very good conversation today. <laughs> I'm excited. Uh, I, I love how, how our backgrounds are complementary, including you being an LA native and me being a recent, relatively recent arrival. I've only spent 10 years of my life in LA, but I'm a, a big LA fan. Yeah. Well, you know, 10 years for LA is like a native anyway. That's how it goes. Yeah, now. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's the opposite of New England or Europe where you have to be multiple generations. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're a native LA. Ang Angelina, yeah. we call me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so let's get started here with a series of five questions. And again, just to remind the audience, this is all things related to Los Angeles and mobility. So the first question, a little bit piece of trivia for folks that to remember the uh, cartoon with, um, uh, what was his name? Ho uh, Hoskins, Bob Hoskins from the late uh, 80s, Roger, who framed Roger Rabbit. Um, so the question is, which was based in Los Angeles. Uh, so who framed Roger Rabbit and the dismantling of the Pacific Electric rail car system. So I guess the question is, uh, how did that whole kind of concept or that notion, the urban myth came about? What is it? What's fact? What's fiction? And how does it kind of uh, lend itself to the myth making of Los Angeles to Chinatown? There's another great uh, movie yeah. about Los Angeles with uh, Jack Nicholson uh, you yeah. know, and John Houston, the great uh, film director. So, uh, you know, kind of getting to that um, transformation of Los Angeles, let's say, in the interwar period, in the depression, yeah. um, and there's a move to the 1940s and this shift away from more traditional rail-based mobility, which was um, uh, 
basically part and parcel of all North American cities up until the 1950s. Los Angeles was no different because it had the largest yeah. urban rail network, larger than Toronto or New York City up until this period of time, which a lot of folks don't even know. So I guess talking about the myth-making, the movie, and what happened to the Pacific rail car system, and then what are we left with? Yeah. Okay. Um, what, like, lots to capture in a short time, but I'll maybe do the place setting, which is early 1900s. One of the things I've always been impressed by, obviously, L.A. as a city developed significantly later than New York or, you know, Chicago, um, just because of the uh, manifest destiny uh, vision of uh, folks in on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. And I do think that, like, that sort of manifest destiny ethos played a really important role in L.A. in the early 1900s in in some ways, very negative uh, in terms of ethics, treatment of others, uh, but nevertheless, a very swashbuckler manifest destiny approach. So, that, for example, you mentioned Chinatown. By the early 1900s, it was becoming very clear that L.A. did not have enough water to support a rapidly growing population. Um, it signed a series of deals of dubious uh, ethics, uh, securing water rights in other areas of California and really using those water rights uh, for the city of L.A. to sort of grow its territory and for cities that were next door to the city of L.A. to say, well, if you want water, we've got it, but we're going to annex you because we don't sell water. We just provide it to our own residents. So that was one like manifest destiny vibe of like, hey, we're going to just find the water. And then another big, uh, in my mind, manifest destiny um, approach was the port. The L.A. was not blessed with a natural port. It just decided to barrel 16 miles south to what is now the port of L.A., uh, just by annexing territory and saying, well, we didn't have a natural port, but we just went and found one and acquired it. Um, and and so this early 1900s, very much swashbuckler, again, with with all the negative and sometimes positive repercussions of that. And in my mind, so the Pacific Electric Streetcar had a similar business model. It was founded by uh, somebody from the railroad industry who said, I'm going to do a light rail system, totally privately owned. And uh, to your point, by the 1920s, it was the largest streetcar system in the world. Um, Thousand miles of track, two thousand trips a day, uh, two thousand trains a day. Pardon me, um, and and really connecting all parts of LA in this growing metropolis. Um, so that part is very much reality, uh, and it and it was in the you know tens and twenties and and even through some of the thirties, like really succeeding in building a a, a transit rich region. Um, but there, I think there were some maybe fatal flaws in how the, the Pacific Electric Railcar system was structured. When we think of transit systems today, we think about the role of um, public subsidies. We think about the role of advertising support, you know, whatever it might be. But the business model for Pacific Electric Railroad is, is not always fully understood. But really what he was doing, it was a real estate acquisition play. That's right. They would acquire real estate uh, in sort of the next community over from where the rail line ran build a railroad there. And then when people said, well, gosh, now I want to live there and I'll buy that property. The, the profits of the real estate sale was what really kept Pacific Electric um, going. You can imagine that at a certain point, there's there, there's only so much further out you can go from the core of downtown LA for that business model makes less and less sense. And it's a one-time gain. So what do you do to really make money on the track you've already built that connects maybe the city of LA to Long Beach and you sold the property rights long ago? That was sort of one real big challenge in, in how Pacific Electric was set up. And then the other was really where public transit or, or transit meets um, public infrastructure, which is the at-grade crossings. So 
And that great crossing is basically where a streetcar is crossing a street in the same way, shape, or form that a private automobile is. And that the growth of the automobile came at the expense of quality of service for the streetcar because they share the same crossings and, and right of way. So you can imagine a trip that might have taken 40 minutes from Long Beach to LA without a lot of automobile traffic uh, using the Pacific Electric Rail Car System might have taken an hour as more and more cars started um, on the streets of LA. And because the Pacific Electric Streetcar was a primarily private enterprise, there wasn't really a lot of notion thought to like, well, how might the powers that be at a, at a governance level think about prioritizing crossing for the streetcar? So there's, you know, as we head into World War II, there's this double double whammy of uh, automobile growth and the real estate um, system. And basically it means that when the city population doubles during World War II, because of all the folks coming from manufacturing jobs for the Arsenal democracy, the city says, looks like these people are gonna stay and we're just gonna need to build a lot more freeways. And so we enter the era of um, freeway growth in LA. So that's sort of building into the movie, Roger Rabbit, which is, um, really taking in then that last chapter of what happened, which is indeed GM, General Motors, Firestone, uh, Mack Trucks put together a business syndicate to basically buy out a lot of rail car systems in the US, um, dismantle them and replace them with, with bus systems. And that was the plot of, of Who Framed Roger Rabbit was basically, um, you know, Judge Doom, who's this sinister judge, is actually the owner of this syndicate or this, this business that's buying up um, the rail car system with the hopes of just tearing it all down and building a freeway through through town and so it, it's funny because like we think of Hoover and Roger Rabbit especially if you're in LA it's got this fantastic other arc in the city of LA which is it rebooted Disney's animation vision and vibe right Disney animation had not been a particularly big part of Disney's story for decades um and because of the success of Roger Rabbit and Disney going wow this is this was a cultural touchstone moment we get the movies you know Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, et cetera. But I, I, I think there is a lot of myth in that whole streetcar vision I, I, and the sort of rule of big auto or rule of big auto in, in tearing down the streetcar system, which is it probably was an accelerant, but I think it was some of that was going to happen anyway, certainly in LA, because the structure of the Pacific Electric Streetcar as a real estate finance business and sharing the equity costing with the cars meant it was sort of challenged to begin with. Um, so definitely unethical and unhelpful behavior by Firestone, General Motors, Mack Trucks, but sort of the writing was a little bit already on the wall with the way the Pacific Electric Streetcar system was was set up to begin with, in my mind. Wow. So, yeah, that's a lot. Um, what I like to share with folks, at least here in Europe and others, is Los Angeles and even the state of California is really a microcosm of the United States. It's really no different. It's just in its really hyper-crystallized form. So what we see in Los Angeles really happened across the U.S., but on a much uh, broader scale, a more intense level. I mean, if we look at, you know, what happened with uh, urban redevelopment and uh, eminent domain of Bunker Hill in downtown Los Angeles, and just clearing out almost like one half of the surface land area of the central business district to create a brand new uh, business district from scratch in the 1950s and 60s. That's That was really unheard of across North American cities in that time, but we started seeing it across Pittsburgh, Toronto, and, and North America. And really, it's just an example of like what you mentioned with the freeways and doing this very kind of um, distinct shift in modality and land use and kind of urbanization. Uh, Los Angeles just tended to be 
uh, a, a bit more, uh, like you mentioned, Manifest Destiny, maybe more experimental, more futuristic of trends that were happening across the continent. A lot of it was rooted in a lot of the urban theories of modernism and internationalism of, you know, kind of car-based modalities that were rooted in like the 1939 World Expo with Rod Robert Moses and with Le Corbusier and the, the, the famous architects in the mid-century modernism. So Los Angeles is really this test bed of trying out what's next. And we can still think, yeah. see Los Angeles being that city of trying out what's next. And I think that th they were a bit more bold and experimental than let's say Eastern seaboard cities because they had the urban fabric that was colonial era from the 16th, 17th, 1800s that gave them a little bit more of that, um, uh, let's say confidence to take uh, more of a tabula rasa approach. So that's just my yeah. own personal opinion. As, uh, no, I, absolutely. <laughs> I think, you know, I always think that what makes LA such a hotbed of mobility innovation today is actually rooted in some of this original sin of being so excited 50 years ago to say, let's just go all in on yeah, the freeways. And to, yeah, not and, and to such a all point, in. I don't know if you have ever read the book, uh, The Four Ecologies by uh, Rainer Branham. It's a great book from an architectural critic about literally there's four architectures, four urban fabrics of LA. Yes. It's the beach cities, this wonderful suburban beach city vibe. It's the hills where basically wealth is connected and lives. And it's the flats where, you know, the less fortunate live. And then literally the fourth part of the fabric is the highways and the free, like the, the freeways. It's this notion of LA is one of four L in it and everything, the diners, McDonald's, you know, all this vision of like the freeway as this, this wonderful good life. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think by the fifties and sixties, uh, we are starting to just see hints at the beginning of like, well, what's the downside of that? Mm -hmm. um what you know what what could possibly go wrong if you rip out the electric system electric rail car system and replace it with um freeways um but the, the four ecologies is a great book uh right. just to capture where la was at that point in time um as it relates to the freeway yeah yeah and, th and this boldness for change and experimentation i think that's a common thread too in the urban history of los angeles but uh, okay so we'll move on to the next question now <laughs> which is a little bit um speaking on the pacific electric rail car system but about a lot of the urban upheavals uh in los angeles and throughout uh uh you know the united states in the 1960s in watts in south los angeles so the watts uprising so just want to get your take on how a community that had been one of the prime nodes of the Pacific Electric Rail Car System rioted, but actually kept that rail station intact because it was a key node, and it was a telling reminder of the importance of mobility in people's lives and kind of the the history behind that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like so many cities in the U.S., the mid '60s was an era of a lot of social unrest, um, including rioting in the streets, and uh, Watts was the center of of some of that activity in um, in 1965 in L.A. National Guard was sent in, et cetera. And there's there's a, a neighborhood just around 103rd Street uh, between Compton and Wilmington Avenues that's sort of nicknamed Charcoal Alley or was during this period because it was most of the buildings were just burned to the ground as part of these riots. Um, but one of the very last standing buildings that was not damaged was the Watt Station that had been um, a huge node of the Pacific Electric um, System. If you look at the map of the Pacific Electric System, it is um, really clear that the southern node is Watts. 
Um, if you're coming anywhere from the beach cities, you know, like El Segundo, you're going to be coming in through Watts. If you're coming in from Orange County, you're going to be going in through line that, that um, Santa Ana. has a stop at Watts. Santa, Santa Ana. Ana. It's like Watts, right? three different, yeah. you know, basically Concurrent. branches all come together in Watts. Yeah. And it's also, Watts tends to be a, a very popular place for Pacific Electric employees to live. Um, so it's just a giant node of the system. And uh, that node, that whole line gets shut down in um, 1959. So we're now only about six years later that uh, the station has been unused, but I think it's a really telling sort of uh, linkage to mobility is a, is a creator of access to jobs, education, uh, healthcare, you know, whatever it is, it, it fulfills so many of our core needs. And the fact that uh, the Watt station of the Pacific Electric Railcar System was not destroyed during the riots and yet almost every other building around it was um is a really telling reminder of the importance of mobilities in people's lives and understanding and, and sort of knowing that mobility equals access to those to those things um so we're entering into that sort of like very car dependent era and and to me that's that like final reminder of like hey when you cut off people's access to mobility cut off access to economic opportunity um to, to development uh and so it's a, it's it's sort of to me one of the markers of la entering the the rough and unfun years of starting to see some of the signs of well, what does it mean if you just become a very freeway dependent city um and so it's really a a dark era the good the good news is that watt station still exists today and it's actually a node now on the la metro system rail line um so it has been sort of re re-brought back into the fabric of the um of the transit system of, of LA. I think just its very location in people's minds and the generations of, of families who lived in the area and know its importance of place, just looking at a map and interacting with it on a daily basis that it was, you know, um, that uh, sense of importance uh, that kept it anchored in the community and allowed it to kind of remain and uh, be, you know, thankfully untouched because uh, it represented what was at least a sense of permanence in terms of, uh, you know, its relationship with, uh, you know, industry, with the um, gateway cities, its relationship with access to the Port of Los Angeles. I mean, it's it's a really key node um, if you anywhere travel south of downtown L.A. So I think that people knew that that was probably a step too far in terms of trying to, you know, um, to, uh, you know, interact with that type of uh of uh, location or uh, infrastructure. So yeah, and, and it uh, remains to this day, functional, fully yeah. functional. Yep. Great, okay. So the next question is a little bit around um, more recent history. I remember this myself, but around the Olympics. So this will be the second Olympics because there's a third one coming up. But in 1984, uh, the LA Olympics, uh, LA created a bus rapid transit system. And kind of from this, and I, I can even speak to this myself, but what are your take what is your take on how it kind of changed commuter patterns during the Olympics and how this BRT system, whether I believe you might be talking about the system that goes to El Monte. I don't know if that you're going to yeah. hit upon that or some other lines, but uh, how, how did it um, kind of uh, benefit Los Angeles? Yeah. Um, well, so in my mind, the 80s and 90s in LA mobility history are like mixed messages, but the tide is beginning to turn in the right direction. And that follows the 50s, 60s and 70s, which were like, the low period, right? Yeah. 50s, 60s, anything. and 70s, we've got just building out of the freeways and then going like, what's, why is there so much smog? And it takes mm -hmm. years to figure out, oh, smog is, is a result of being so um, dependent on the automobile, mm -hmm. et cetera. So 
you know, 50s, 60s, 70s are the dark era for mobility. And then you get the 80s and 90s where you start getting mixed messages and sort of some hints of what's to come. And I think the 84 Olympics was a great hint of what was to come. Um, it's notable in Olympics history because it's one of the first modern Olympic games to make money in a developed uh, market. And a lot of that was, you know, Montreal, for example, in 76, it had massive losses. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a real lesson because this the, uh, LA Olympic approach was, you know, we're the second biggest city in America. We're not going to go on an infrastructure building binge to make these Olympics work. We're going to take our existing infrastructure and create a lot of temporary and smart solutions to make the games work, um, which was a very, again, a very different approach uh, at the time. Um, so, for example, um, there was a, a pop-up bus rapid transit system where actually for during the games, um, bus routes were, for example, given right of way, et cetera, et cetera. You know, ways we use the bus system in a way that it hadn't been used before that actually provided for people being able to get around the city quickly during the Olympics by bus, uh, which again, might've been unthinkable for people when you go LA, really 84, people were really getting around to all these Olympic venues by bus yeah, right away. Um, and similarly, there was a really big push between um, the city of LA and, or, or LA broadly and employers to say, hey, we're gonna have to have staggered work schedules. We can't have people all trying to rush into jobs uh, from nine to five at the same time as we're trying to host some of these um, Olympic games events. And so there was lots of actually flex work that was done during the Olympics, which, you know, now obviously today we're a lot more familiar with post-COVID. Um, but there was a lot of really innovative scheduling that employers did around, um, you know, the, the predecessors to remote work or mixed, mixed to delayed or earlier shifts. Um, and in that sense, what was notable to me about the LA Olympics is they didn't insist on building a lot of new infrastructure, but instead said, let's just use our existing system a lot more efficiently and smartly and did so in a way that made made money. Um, and so I think that's, you know, that is also tied into a lot of the vision for the upcoming Olympics in LA, which is we're not going to go on a massive infrastructure build just for the Olympics. We're mostly going to try to reuse our existing infrastructure in a smart way. And perhaps at that point in time, because you mentioned this was kind of a transitionary period, LA was in a bit of infrastructure fatigue in terms of freeway build out. So this is where you see a lot of these freeway stubs in Alhambra, in Pasadena, uh, you see stubs out in Laverne, you see all these kind of half-built, unbuilt freeways, where if you look at the original Caltrans plan, the, you know, there was probably, you know, hundreds of more miles of freeways that were originally envisioned back in the 1950s. So um, then we saw more of kind of a freeway uh, spending splurge in the 1990s, this kind of last gasp into like San Bernardino County, into Riverside County, and, and kind of filling these, these gaps. But um, in terms of this, let's say, reticence towards um, going all in on maybe finite or one-time infrastructure to kind of position the Olympic Games, you know, Los Angeles certainly didn't do that. And they were very smart about it because they learned lessons from other cities, like you mentioned, Montreal. And I think it was also indicative of kind of where L.A. was in this kind of middle period in the 80s and 90s, where it was starting to slowly transition into um uh, you know, uh, bond financing for, um, you know, uh, uh, future, um, you know, uh, light rail lines, such as the Metro line yeah. launched in 1990, et cetera. And um, I think that there wasn't a full commitment to just focus on Olympic games. So yeah, I, yeah. long answer to short question, but I agree with what you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and to me that like, the, again, another reason for hope is exactly in 1980 voters said, you know what, 
We will pass this um, measure in LA County, supported by a legendary county supervisor, Kenneth Hahn. Um, the Hahn family goes back, you know, generations in, in LA politics. And, you know, he said, I'm going to put the trains back. And the actual vision of, of what Han wanted was uh, a, a real train along the Wilshire corridor, which we can get to in a second. Mm -hmm. But what actually got, you know, the first manifestation of that uh, voter uh, uh, measure from 1980 was reestablishing a transit link between the city of L.A. and the city of Long Beach, which for, you know, for almost as long as as Long Beach and L.A. have existed, has been one of the densest travel corridors you can you can imagine so i'm really grateful that 1980 was that first moment of like voters saying like oh yeah putting a train line you know either along wilshire or along um la to long beach like i can get behind that as a voter yeah and uh L the link between la and long beach is the logic first start in the system absolutely so it was a great it was a great point in time in 1990 so uh getting to the last question here um or maybe the last question let's see how much time we have is why do you think uh, Los Angeles might be the second city in the United States to have congestion pricing? Yeah, well, I, I think it gets back to since maybe the the arrival of the 2000s, um, that momentum that was just a glimmer of hope in the 1980 uh, Prop A vote starts to really accelerate. You start seeing all sorts of signs that Angelinos are ready for change. They They recognize, hey, we sort of overdosed on on building out um, freeway infrastructure. I'm tired of being stuck in this crazy long commute. There's got to be something better. So we start seeing all sorts of signs in the 2000s that Angelinos are ready to to enter in a new era of experiments. So you've got these two giant measures that pass in 2008 and 2016. At a time when measures like this weren't passing in other cities in the U.S., by the way, I mean, it's been really difficult to get um, taxation measures passed where citizens say, yeah, just this tax us for the next, in the case of L.A., in perpetuity to build out a uh, a, a light rail system uh, network. So, you know, 2008 and 2016 are these two legendary Measure M and Measure R, which was resulted in a permanent tax increase in L.A. County to finance not just that, you know, LA to Long Beach light rail link, but a light rail system that really is worthy of the second largest city in America. Granted, one that's probably less dense per square mile than a lot of other cities in America and, and probably always will be, but it can be by the voters to say, we're going to invest in, in a lot of infrastructure. And that infrastructure, you know, there, there was nothing about that vision or plan that was like, this is because the Olympics, right? This is, this is what we need on a day-to-day -day basis to get LA uh, mobility higher functioning. So that to me is that 2008, 2016 is when LA just says, we're going to, we're going to build. Um, and so that's the way it continued to translate into today. I think in this era of now a great degree of openness towards new mobility systems, new mobility structures. So, you know, we now have a bike share network that covers parts of um, the dense urban core of uh, downtown LA, Koreatown, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we're, we've now got, you know, several different lines of the transit system. Uber and Lyft, I would argue, had a bigger impact here than maybe in some other cities um, as because we didn't have a really functioning taxi cab system. I don't think it's a surprise that Bird actually launched, Bird Scooters um, launched in L.A. I think there was an appetite here for people to figure out shorter trips that didn't involve the car. And, and now we've got this great... Um, sort of even EV economy here in LA, everywhere from Bird to Rivian 
to aviation, which is moving towards electrification. We've got this like battery economy in LA that continues to throw off a lot of new um, innovations. And so we're on the precipice of just like a further series of developments in LA that are all planned, announced, and that you all go, this is just going to be a, a bigger addition to the system. So for example, next year, uh, we get the opening of the metro system going to LAX. And that's going to be huge, right? We know that when people enter the city, when they leave the airport is the first time to get them excited about a mobility system. And if we can get them on the metro, literally when they leave the airport, we increase the chances that, they're, that as they're taking that metro, they look at the map and go, oh, actually, we can get around for a lot of our trip on, on the metro system. So that's going to be a pretty big moment when when people arrive at LAX next year and say, oh, we'll just take you know the subway out of, out of uh, LAX. Um, so that's a that's a big thing coming next year. I'm also you mentioned Wilshire, right? Wilshire is the Wilshire Boulevard East West Line in um, LA is one of the most busy roadways in, in the city of LA, and the second tranche of what's you know I call the Purple Line, you call the Purple Line. Um, the system is is expanding so quickly that we're going from colors to letters, and a lot yeah, of people still stick with right. the and colors. It was fought for so long too. I remember in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there was so much opposition to the construction of that one line and Absolutely. so much I mean, amenityism. If you look at Beverly Hills, yes. Hollywood, Fairfax district, at some point in time, they didn't think that they would ever even finish it or extend it to Westwood at all. Yeah. I, I, there, you know, if you look at, it, it's an interesting history. And again, I'm sure there's a lot of like physical infrastructure reasons, but the expo line, right. Is this East West line that connects um, downtown to Santa Monica. And if you look at how that's changed, um, parts of LA, it's been an incredible success story. I mean, Culver City, for Culver example. City. I used to live in Culver it City. Is, I mean, I was joking now. with somebody who lived in, I was having lunch with a friend of mine and she lived in Culver City in the 90s. She goes, that used to be just dead zone. And she goes, now it in is the 80s. Yes. happening, right? Like Culver yep. City is on the Expo line mm -hmm. and be, partly because the Expo line has become, Apple's opened up offices there, That's right. et cetera. I mean, it is like a prime area for economic development. And a big chunk of that is Culver City happened to be along the Expo line. Um, and people saw the economic development. But unfortunately, the line a little bit further north, east-west, which is the Wilshire line, suffered from a lot of nimbyism and a lot yeah. of pushback from Beverly Hills, et cetera. Um, the good news is that by the Olympics, um, the Wilshire line will be able to take you from downtown to UCLA, including some of the sporting facilities at UCLA. And so that's a huge connector um, of connecting you know, everything from UCLA through Beverly Hills, et cetera, all the way through to downtown. Um, that's going to be a great improvement. And then the K line, which just opened up uh, quite recently, North South line um, is going to go French all line. Yeah. It's going to go North to Hollywood. Right. So we're just, we're continuing to build out in a way that eventually it will hit in people's minds. Like, gosh, I can, I can get around this whole city via uh, some combination of, of Metro and other services. Um, so that's, you know, that's exciting. And then you, you did mention congestion pricing, which is, um, you know, obviously some of your readers, I'm sure, are following what's happened in New York. Um, they're determined to go through with congestion pricing in lower Manhattan, despite maybe a, a lawsuit. Despite New Jersey. <laughs> despite New Jersey lawsuits, um, <laughs> claiming that the feds didn't do their homework properly. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to go over well. I don't with know about that. <laughs> homework properly, don't worry. Um, but LA Metro is committed to congestion pricing. Uh, and at least doing a pilot. Uh, so I actually might imagine that LA could become the second city in the US to have congestion pricing. And Metro is currently coming up with proposals now for a pilot 
and really thinking through is that in the downtown core is that yeah, along the four, five core freeways or other yeah areas? exactly but but i think the fact that we can even have this conversation and of course there's some pushback from some folks uh, about congestion pricing but there's also pushback you know in new york right where mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's going to probably happen first in the U.S. The fact, though, that L.A. Metro and the elected powers that be are moving forward with this um, is a real testament, I think, to that that appetite for innovation and experiment that makes L.A. this great hub for for mobility. Um, this recognition that, like, yeah, gosh, if we just make the the freeways this endless free resource, we get induced demand, we get uh, people spending overly large chunks of their days sitting in the car going 20 miles an hour. Um, and so I'm excited for the, the, the pilot on congestion pricing and, and what that might that mean in terms of shifting people's modes where they go, oh, I'll pay a premium to take the, the, the car certain times when I want to really pay a premium and, and get into downtown in my car personally. Um, but other times I'm going to figure out a different way, whether that's by scooter, bike, um, metro, et cetera. So I, I just continue to see, and, and we've had a change in, city hall recently but i continue to see that appetite and you know we haven't even really gone into the byzantine uh sort of structure of la we've it, it, i probably aired yeah, by talking about la i think we'll have to do a part two exactly yeah yeah i mean I've, LA, la city is, versus LA, the city county, of la of course la county la region and um, surrounding counties surrounding cities yes exactly um southern california uh, we'll just say that. southern california um but certainly we've had a a transition in city hall uh with mayor bass in the last uh year or so um but i i don't see any slowdown in the overall political appetite for continuing to really acknowledge that 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 era of 50s and 60s where we just said let's just go build more freeways is the answer that era is definitively over in la we're not going to rip up existing infrastructure but the ethos now is, okay, we've, we've built the freeway infrastructure we're going to build. How do we either make better use of our existing assets today, you know, by, by congestion pricing, whatever, or how do we build um, better infrastructure that better serves as our population grows, whether that's metro or building out a bike share network or, or whatever else it might be. So I, I just continue to see LA, you know, when people always ask me, they're like, how did LA become a hub of, of innovation when... It's, and it's said, always you know, been though. It, it, there's always, always been a spirit of boldness and experimentation in Los Angeles. I mean, you can go back over a century or even more, and these kind of rapid shifts in urban policy and in just in land use and in the physical built environment, which is something you do not see. Not to criticize uh, East Coast cities, but you don't see it in other parts of America as much, and it is a bit more, like I said. Um, or we spoke before, it's a little bit of kind of America on steroids in that way. It's yeah. a very kind of extreme example of, of uh, you know, how other American cities uh, not necessarily follow suit, but they, uh, uh, let's say, shift and transform over time. And we see these really distinct periods and eras in L.A.'s uh, urban history, you know, for, starting with the Pueblo in the 1770s to, you know, an Anglo settlement in the early 1800s to, you know, the, like you mentioned, the, the ports in San Pedro, San Pedro, however you want to pronounce it, to all these different eras uh, in Los Angeles history. But uh, there's a continuum, but there's really rapid breaks in history. So it's very schizophrenic, the, the urban yeah. history of Los Angeles. But the continuity is this appetite for boldness. So with that, yeah. we'll have to wrap it up here. So I wanted to pass the mic to you so that you can let everyone know where we can find you on social media um, in terms of your work. 
your newsletter, and then we'll certainly promote this uh, after the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Um, on, on X or Twitter, for those who still use that service, yeah, uh, you can find me. <laughs> uh, I, am, I am Alex Mitchell, but probably the best way is via Substack. I write a bi-weekly newsletter on mobility uh, and investing in the space. Uh, that's at alexmitchell.substack.com. The newsletter is called Sustainable Mobility. Um, and, and check that out to really find out what I'm working on and what I'm um, looking at in the mobility space. And one thing I'd like to share with the audience is that the City's First podcast and um, Sustainable Mobility are partners. So we kind of share content uh, across marketing uh, amongst our platforms. So with uh, future uh, newsletters of Sustainable Mobility, we share that on our social media and vice versa of our podcast. So we'll be kind of um, collaborating on more ventures coming up soon. And I think that this definitely calls for a part two. So I would like to suggest yeah. that sometime in the near future. I, a great idea. I'm down. Thank you so much, Scott. It was Thank a real, you, real pleasure. And uh, talk soon. I will talk soon. Thanks a lot.